This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack with our special of Sharpshooters featuring myself, Mark Scribb, and Mr. Zach White. Zach, Hello. how are you doing? I'm all right, mate. How are you doing? I'm good. I'm good. I'm, I'm enjoying our little fake spring we're having and uh, getting a bit outside and bearing my nose into a book on the grey days. What have you been up to? Um, I've been really dull, I'm afraid, and I've just been kind of working away. So, uh, yeah, writing, um, finishing off a PhD, which is not an easy or necessarily particularly fun process because all the exciting stuff's been done already. But oh, uh, good yeah, I look getting... forward to not calling you Mr. Zach any, any longer and calling you Dr. White. Which sounds like a Cluedo character. You know, um, I don't know how I'm going to keep a straight face when I shave in the mirror, looking back at Dr. White. It's just going to be so weird when it happens. Just uh, with a lead pipe in the library. Uh, so what are, we, what are we talking about today? Today we are going to look at three sieges from the Peninsula War, which all took place in 1812. Those are the sieges of Theodore Rodrigo, Badajoz and Burgos. Uh, I mean, everybody knows that I like a dodgy Game of Thrones reference, so let's get that out of the way to start with, because you've got three, Marcus buries his head in his hands, but, you know, you've got to give the public what they want, mate. Um, they're three very different types of sieges. So with Burgos, it's, Burgos to me feels like a bit like the Battle of Winterfell, the final one with the Army of the Dead, where you smash down the wall and it's still not enough. You know, the, the, the defenders still win in the end anyway. Theodore Rodrigo, that to me is the Siege of Highgarden because it goes really well. You know, yes. it's, it's a very quick kind of smash and grab operation. Um, and then Badahoff is, well, it's King's Landing, isn't it? Right at the end of the series. You know, the, the aftermath is just an absolute shit show, which is a technical term, we should say. That is um, a technical term. So, yeah, if, if we're doing dodgy Thrones references, that, that's my, my reference. There are surprising amount of sieges in Game of Thrones, including um, the one on the wall and stuff. But yeah. we've seen this in Sharp, both the books and the films, actually, and it's one of the most accurate um, film adaptations of the books. Uh, this is Sharp's company, isn't it? So it this is, is where we have Mark Warren, really nice chap, was on the Reunion podcast, coming in as Captain Reimer. He's taken over Sharp's uh, company, uh, hence the name of the episode, uh, because actually he's purchased his way in, which is quite a, a technical thing, which maybe we'll unpick another time. Uh, but he's got it. So Sharp's been donated, uh, demoted to lieutenant. 
and has gone to Quartermaster's store, uh, which is what happened to a lot of basically commissions from the ranks, actually, still, still as they get Quartermaster commissions, etc. So he's there and looking over, well, actually, what's not clear is actually he's looking over everybody's shoulder. He wants any of them to die out of the, the 10 company captains. He's not actually fussy about the light cap company, in theory. Uh, but especially, he's got his sights on the back of uh, the officer commanding the light company of the South Essex, uh, Captain Reimer, hoping that he's going to die. And actually, where, what's kind of obvious throughout is that when it comes to sieges, it's a really hard business. In a line battle, um, there are places that you can literally hide. Uh, if you're a rifleman, um, you're trying to use that cover, a light infantry, trying to use the cover, pairs, fire, manoeuvre. Uh, but in a siege, they are throwing men against the wall. And this is, I mean, this is difficult for me to say. This is one of Wellington's weak points. I come in for his defence that he was quite a good offensive general. He could get in there at Victoria, at Salamanca, in the Pyrenees. Dare I hark on about it anymore? Porto. Are you writing a book about Porto, Marcus? Oh, I, I, I haven't mentioned that very much. Um, at Porto, he crosses the river. God, even Richard Sharp crowbars in there at Havoc and appears in the seminary. Uh, but that's for another time. And um, But at sieges, I mean... Wellington kind of sucks, doesn't he, Zach? Yeah, I mean, when I think about sieges, I'm always reminded of something that Mark Thompson said at a conference a couple of years back, where he described the three sieges that we're going to look at today as the good, the bad and the ugly of sieges during the Peninsular War. And I think that's a really nice way of looking at it. Wellington, for all of his strengths and not all of the, the reasons why he's not good at sieges are his fault. The bottom line is sieges aren't his bag, really. Um, Theodore Rodrigo seems to stand out as the exception of a siege that goes really well, uh, which we will look at. But yeah, they're not his thing. Um, and we'll discuss this later, but I suspect India is partly to blame for that and the fact that he didn't have to learn siege craft in the European sense. Mm. Not in India. He had to learn it in the Indian sense, which was a very different prospect. Very different thing. I'm, again, I'm reminded of our hero, then Sergeant Sharp, you know, trying to do some substitutes in, inside the uh, cities or in India and uh, some of it going well, some of it going badly, but it was a completely different kettle of fish, um, just in an analogy. And he, yeah, it wasn't the same. But Badahoff and Suudad Rodrigo, these are two much fought-after towns, fortified towns, uh, almost medieval fortifications going around them that had some recent additions, and they pop up a lot when you start to read histories of the Peninsular War. They change hands all the time um, for different reasons. They both sit very close to the Portuguese-Spanish uh, border, and that border is very mountainous. So you're looking at a few roads east to west uh, within this uh, peninsula, and whoever controls the roads in and out is going to have the easiest time. Yeah, I mean, to explain to people why do these towns matter, as you say, the, the geography is a factor. The other thing you've got to bear in mind is kind of the context. So let's take this back a little bit. Sieges are normally the exception rather than the norm during this period. Now that's a break from the tradition of the 18th century. As part of the kind of the age of enlightenment and the age of very limited sized, highly professional armies, unlike what you see in the French army during the um, during the Napoleonic era, which is a conscript force. Before that point, during the Ancien Regime, what you've got are 
people who are paid, they're trained up, they are professional forces. And so if you've got this highly trained force, you don't really want to risk it in an open battle. Because if you do that, and it all goes horribly wrong, and your army is crushed, then you've got no backup. There's nothing else that you can use to plug the gap that's going to stand in the way of your enemy. And because of that, you see a lot of focus on sieges. And this is a time when people don't, you've got Age of Enlightenment ideas, and people don't like the idea of wasting people's lives. So what you tend to find is that these campaigns focus around sieges, you knock a hole in a fortress wall, there are lots of um, clever technological developments about protecting fortress walls, but once you've got a breach in that fortress wall, usually the garrison surrenders. And if it doesn't, there is this custom that the garrison can then be put to the sword if they withstand an assault. Now Napoleon comes in and he changes that. He insists that the governors of his fortresses, of French-held fortifications, must not surrender until they've withstood at least one assault. What that means is that this is the reason why these sieges become such bloody affairs. Because if you're going to, as Marcus says, hurl men literally against a stone wall, they're scrambling up a effectively broken rocky slope to try and get over the lip of the breach into the fortress. You've got men firing at you from all sides. You've got cannon fire coming at you from every direction. They don't just leave the hole in the wall. They find ways of kind of plugging the gap and creating interior defences so that once you're inside the breach, you've then got to fight your way out and you're in this bottleneck. If you're going to throw men into that, you're going to have bloodshed. And we're going to see that with the losses that we're going to discuss today. So why... Why Theodore Rodrigo, why Badajoz particularly, which are the first two, January and April 1812 respectively? Well, the bigger picture of the Peninsula War is that there's a story of history repeating itself. In 1808, the British come in, they liberate Portugal, they advance into Spain, and then they have to withdraw. In 1809, Wellington's sent back to Portugal with his Portuguese allies, he liberates Portugal, advances into Spain, and then guess what? Has to withdraw. In 1810, the French invade Portugal fail to capture Portugal, and are then pushed back to the border. And 1812 is basically spent in a stalemate over the border fortresses. There are only two main routes into Madrid, effectively, two main roads into Spain. And as a result, they're heavily fortified. If you're going to move an army, you need a, a decent road. What you have on the Portuguese side of the border, to the north, is a fortress called Almeida, to the south, a fortress called Elvash. But each of those fortresses has a twin on the Spanish side of the border. So Almeida's twin is Theodore Rodrigo, Elvash's twin is Badajoz. And these are known as the Keys of Spain. If you are going to take your army into Spain and wreak havoc with the French occupying forces, you've got to take those two. At least one, but preferably both. Yeah, so that kind of lays out where they are. Um, but they're not just a simple case of... There's actually just one siege and they go in. And this is actually much more complicated as part of the kind of wider grand campaign. Again, it goes back to my overriding theme with Wellington that he's not a defensive general. Even when he's fighting a defensive battle, he's actually marching into enemy held territory and then basically choosing a really good ground, which I think is a smart thing to do, and then saying, come on then, if you think you're hard enough, come at us, rather than going and attacking uh, what's usually a larger force. But that gives him a problem. He can't hold all of Spain. His army's normally going to be much smaller than the opposition. And actually, the whole of the French army in Spain is going to be about a quarter of a million, 200,000 plus, uh, minus the number of sick and dying, which is a surprisingly high percentage. Uh, Wellington's army fluctuates between 50 to 
80,000 men, uh, give or take, with casualties. So he's got that, and he's going to be against an equivalent of a corps, uh, spelt corpse, a corps of the French army at the time, which would be like a self-sufficient body under a, a marshal, under people's names that you'll know, like Marshal Ney, Marshal Soult, or uh, a senior general, a very senior general occasionally. Uh, so there'll be a self-sufficient army that'll be coming uh, to try to kick the, the British, uh, which actually really normally be Portuguese and Spanish as well, uh, out and back into Portugal. So to take those two cities, Ciudad Rodrigo and Badajoz, we kind of got the Spanish ones, like you say, the Spanish sisters um, there, the keys, um, but we need to get the, the Spanish ones as well. And they were originally held by Spanish troops, but actually the French managed to, to take them earlier on in the campaign. Yeah, and it, it takes, in fact, talking on that last point, talking about Badajoz particularly, the Spanish held Badajoz right up until the moment when Wellington was pushing the French, the last French invasion back to the Portuguese border. Um, but then it fell before he could organise relief forces to be sent to kind of push away the besieging fortresses, which I think was a massive kick in the teeth for him. I don't think he expected Badajoz to fall when it did. And I think when you look at his movements, it's quite clear he's expecting to push back up towards Almeida, take Almeida, take Theodore Rodrigo, and then think about what he can do in Spain. But because Badajoz falls, it leaves him with a problem because it means that he hasn't got a totally secure southern flank. And so what you see over the course of 1811 is Almeida is eventually taken. It's starved, if you like, into submission. Um, You see the Battle of Trento Don Euro, which defeats the French attempt to relieve Almeida. Um, But then at Badajoz, there are multiple attempts to take the place over the course of 1811, and all of them fail. And the reason they all fail is because you've got to prepare utterly meticulously for these sieges. You're talking about big artillery trains. Um, You're talking about fresh cannon, which isn't readily available um, in much of Spain. I think when they first try and besiege Badajoz, they're using cannon which are 200 years old. And what they find is that as they start to fire these cannon, it's, it's too much. Imagine now if we tried to fire a piece of ordnance from 200 years ago. What happens? Well, in their case, the cannons just start to droop, which obviously isn't ideal if you're trying to aim at a target. So it, it all goes horribly wrong for them. I'm, I'm um, reminded of some medieval ones, that uh, medieval sieges, where they blew their cannons up uh, themselves and killed people. I think one of, one of the Jameses of Scotland got blown up by his own cannon. Um, yeah, so, I mean, these cannons, they are considerably bigger. The British guns at the time are actually very small uh, in comparison, especially some of the French pieces. And what they've got to do is this preparation. Uh, we'll come on to the Royal Engineers, but you don't really have many uh, soldiers in that branch. So there's a bit of a jiggery-pokery that needs to be done. Again, my sharp reference is we see the South Essex and the chosen men digging trenches, uh, which is not really their role. Uh, but the first one we're going to come to is Suidad Rodrigo. So if you could, maybe Zach, you could tell us about the uh, foundation of that siege. Yeah, so as we say, the, the prep for Theodore Rodrigo was absolutely meticulous. There's a new siege train. All of this has to be assembled. As Marcus says, you're talking about much bigger guns than the, the Brits normally are, are moving around. So you're talking about 18-pounders, um, whereas normally the French are using 12-pounders and the Brits are using 9-pounders or 6-pounders or even 3-pounders at times. So we're talking big guns, if you like. Now, if you've got a big piece of ordnance, it's heavy to move. 
That means you need lots of oxen to move those guns. You also need oxen to move the ammunition of those guns. You need oxen to move the gunpowder. You then need to um, take the food for the oxen and the food for the soldiers manning them. And then you need more oxen to feed the, to carry the carts that are going to supply the other oxen that are carrying all of the ammunition. And so it goes on. So you end up with these absolutely vast siege trains. Um, I was, again, going back to Mark's talk, I'm pretty sure he said that when, if you stood in one spot and watched the entire siege train move, by the time the last cut in that siege train had started off on their way to their destination, the very first cuts that set off would have arrived at their overnight halt. That's how massive we're talking here. Yeah, I think for modern conflicts, you still have that problem. Obviously, you've got airlift and stuff, but I think roughly uh, in conflicts such as Afghanistan, for every frontline fighting soldier, it took about four facilitators, that's logistics, engineering, uh, and all the mechanical support, medical behind. Uh, behind. So if you've got a 1,000 men uh, fighting, you've got about 4,000 supporting them. So it just gives a scope of actually your front line that we always talk about, uh, Wellington's red, uh, red, jacket, uh, red coats and green jackets. There's a lot more, actually, other colours in there once you count in the Spanish and the Portuguese. Uh, but once you count that front line, the, the South Essex Regiment of your 10 companies, you're going to need a huge chain behind them to support them. And is this a problem with Suidad Rogiga? No, it's not, because Wellington basically spends the winter preparing uh, and that helps you a lot? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, you've got to bear in mind that the last really big battle that the British fight is Albuera in May 1811. So you don't get a huge... There are other operations and there are small battles that happen. And Albuera, just for uh, listeners, because it's one of the few that Bernard Cornwall doesn't uh, shoehorn sharp into, was under Marshal Beresford, um, William Carr, uh, who's marshal of the Portuguese forces, even though he's a British officer, and he almost gets defeated. He kind of pulls a victory out of the bag, and uh, m- many of his regiments actually get overrun by uh, French and Polish lancers. It's a really bloody affair, uh, but that puts the campaign on quite a back footing. Uh, but Suidad Rodrigo starts to go well. Yeah, it does. I mean, Wellington's estimate is it's going to take anywhere between 24 and 36 days to take the place. Now what that means is that he needs to find a 24 to 36 day gap in which the French can't respond because as soon as he lays siege to Theodore Rodrigo he knows that the runners are going to go out to French headquarters which is in Salamanca for that part of Spain and the order is going to be given for the army to reassemble and they're going to try and chase Wellington away. So he knows he's got to move fast. He needs the element of surprise, which is why he moves in the dead of winter. On the 8th of January, the uh, siege begins. The light division is sent to take some outlying redoubts um, and the digging starts. As Marcus says, you have to dig trenches to dig your way towards the enemy fortifications. If you just basically told all your men, there's the wall, run to it. You can imagine what's going to happen. All of those men are going to be mown down by artillery fire before they get anywhere near it. So you need the trenches to effectively shelter your troops to move them into a position close to the walls from which they can then jump out and then leg it to the breach. But at the same time, you've also got to dig the, the positions for the batteries because the guns themselves are vulnerable to artillery fire. 
And so you've got to build the, the protection, if you like, around them, which includes kind of these wicker baskets stuffed full of earth and digging the, the emplacements into the ground. So there's a lot of digging involved. But bear in mind that this is done in the depths of winter. It is bitterly, bitterly cold. The army has to, or some, I think it's the light division, has to cross a river every day to get to um, to and from where they're, they're digging the, the, the trenches. And what they find is that these large chunks of ice are just coming sweeping down the river and carrying off men. And so what they do is they send horses in slightly upstream to basically act as the barrier to stop all of these um, shards of ice just taking out men as they cross the river. So you can imagine how utterly freezing cold it is. And, and they made... in a in a woolen trousers, no socks, probably by this point, single layer leather shoes, they don't even have boots, and a, a jacket, and hopefully a, a great coat if you're lucky. That is very unpleasant, and that's just not going to dry. Uh, I know from experience that even modern uniforms they can take a while to get dry if you don't have a spare. And they, most of them wouldn't have had spares. They might have had a spare shirt, but they're not going to have a full spare uh, coat. And if they're lucky enough to have one of those, they'll probably sell it off, uh, to be honest, uh, for a bottle of gin. Um, those rogues. So it's just deeply unpleasant wading through ice. I hadn't quite considered the level of the, the cold. I knew it was the winter, but you know, the water... And that's something yeah. you just don't get a feel for always. Just that, just fighting against your terrain, your environment. Never mind the enemy. It slows your body down and it numbs the bones. So, what's Wellington's approach here? It's all it's all meant to be going well, but it's, it's sounding pretty horrific from the off go. It, it is. It does go well, actually, in the grand scheme of things. You've got to bear in mind also that they're working at night, so they're working the coldest part of the day, and they work at night because then you've got the cover of darkness, so the enemy can't see you to fire on you. So, so that's a way of reducing casualties, but there are casualties nonetheless. Um, but they do make quite rapid progress. The repairs, the French took Theodore Rodrigo in 1810. Wellington effectively looks at what the French did, looks at the terrain and goes, actually, you know what? That's the best plan of attack. We're going to do exactly the same thing. And so he targets the same parts of the wall. Why, the reason why that's quite a good idea from his perspective, not only is it the best ground, but it's also the case that the repairs that the French made were really quite bad. The mortar hadn't kind of set in the way that it should. It was poor quality mortar. And so these walls crumble quite readily. Um, and by the 19th of June, you've got two breaches, two holes that have been knocked in the French wall. And Wellington observes them, has a look, speaks with engineers, basically decides that any more time spent further battering the walls is just going to give the French more time to prepare for the eventual assault. And so he gives the order on the 19th for them to go in. And it's a, it's a multi-pronged assault. It's not just a case of, look, there's a hole, you men, go run into it. It's obviously much more sophisticated than that. So you've got a number of uh, diversionary attacks that go in, and then you've got these assaults on the two breaches. So the third division is given the greater breach to kind of help people with the geography. If you think about Theodore Rodrigo as a, essentially a square, uh, you've got a river to the south of the square. That's the river Agueda, um, which basically protects, obviously, the, the southern flank. The breaches are both in the north wall. So you've got the lesser breach, which is pretty much slap bang in the middle of the north wall. And then you've got the greater breach, which is in the northwest corner. 
What Wellington does is he sends the third division in to attack the greater breach, the light division in to attack the lesser breach, and then he sends in a number of escalates. So some Portuguese under a chap called Atul, a whole brigade, are sent in to the south, they cross the river, and they escalate near the castle. You've got Dennis Pack's Portuguese brigade, which is sent in on the eastern side, also by escalade, they have to use ladders to climb up and over the walls, and then uh, two battalions are sent in on the western side, so that's the 2nd Battalion, 5th Regiment, and the 1st Battalion, 94th. Effectively, it, the French know that they're coming, and what they're able to actually do is hold the greater breach. The light divisions succeed after a lot of bloody work in forcing their way into the lesser breach. Uh, they lose their commander, Robert Crawford, in the process, but they are able to gain. But at the, the greater breach, the French hold them, so that their plans, their interior defences, effectively work. What yeah, they lose uh, Black, Black Bob, the uh, dark temper and famous flogger, um, commander of the Light Division. I'm always a bit surprised that Wellington chose the Light Division, uh, to be honest. They are trained to skirmish, they're trained to be light troops. Uh, yes, they're meant to be more intelligent, but that's not. That's always a bit of a sweeping generalisation. Uh, they're certainly specialist troops uh, to a level of degree, and I'm always a bit surprised that they are sent out uh, in that kind of manner to just to storm. They do it. They do it very well. Uh, let's say to big losses, but I always thought it was a very strange uh, choice, actually. Aren't they meant to be better disciplined, though? Which means that, from his perspective, he thinks that they'll hold together better in that environment. Maybe, um, hopefully, uh, but the British line regiments, I don't want to do them uh, any like poor justice. There's nothing wrong with a county regiment of um, British soldiers, uh, normally supplemented with a strong load of Irishmen uh, within their ranks. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure that they are too much different apart from the way they're trained and they're not on an open battlefield. So you mentioned discipline. So this brings us on to uh, what we must talk about is the darkest part of the British behaviour in the peninsula is their discipline and especially within sieges. If only I knew a guy who's writing a PhD about British discipline and crime and punishment, now would be a really useful time. If so, if I, what only? Ah, oh, it seems to be Dr White. Um, so what happens when they go inside? Well, eventually the 3rd Division is actually able to get into the town alongside the lights and alongside the diversionary attacks. What happens is that the, the 2nd Battalion, 5th and the 1st, 94th, after having got into the town, what they do is they move to flank the Greater Breach. The French pull out and the 3rd Division are able to scramble their way in. What happens at Ciudad Rodrigo, I think, is often a precursor to what happened at, at Badajoz, really. The warnings are there and nobody learns the lessons. Over the course of that night, the British, effective and, and Portuguese, in fairness, celebrate the fact that they've got into the town, by looting the place, and in the process, we do see uh, murders and we do see sexual assault. Not on a large scale at Ciudad Rodrigo, it's much worse at Badajoz, but nonetheless it happens. Um, and it's, uh, there are a few reasons why this happens. It, partly it's a kind of a multiplier effect. So they start off by wanting to celebrate. They've just stormed the, these breaches. Siege work is incredibly bloody. Um, it's really quite harrowing to be told to scramble up this slope, watch all of your friends knocked down beside you in an incredibly bloody way. We're talking about close fire, uh, close range cannon fire. Um, 
people being knocked down onto the bodies of their comrades. It's, it's terrible. Okay, there's, there's no getting away from that. And that doesn't excuse it. But what they initially do is they go searching for booze. They want to celebrate their victory with drink. They get drunk. Um, and in the process, things escalate from there. So the violence kicks in. They start stopping looking for booze and start looking for money. That then means that they are handling the locals roughly. And you get some arse wipes within any nationality who will take advantage of people and their vulnerability. And so that's you know how you end up with these situations of sexual assault. What I find much harder to stomach is the fact that the British Army doesn't do anything about it. And this is something we'll talk about a little bit. I wouldn't say a lot, but we'll talk about a little bit more. When we um, come to talk about Badahoff, but that's the blemish on what is otherwise a pretty good operation for for Wellington. I mean, we were talking earlier about Mark Thompson and how he describes these as the good, the bad and the ugly. Sid Abadrigo is, is the good. It doesn't get any better than this. Uh, partly the reason it's so good is because of a, a nice stroke of luck, because it's impossible for the French to retake the town for a very simple reason. Not only has it been a remarkable achievement within 11 days, Bear in mind what I said earlier, Wellington plans for something away between 24 and 36 days, but manages it in 11. Within 11 days, he's able to take the town. Now, the French barely know what's hit them. You know, the news has scarcely reached French HQ in Salamanca before Wellington's ordering the assault. Um, so it's that classic, caught with your, with your trousers down, the, the French army is scattered across the region. They haven't got the time to gather to then relieve the fortress. But, crucially, the siege train, the French guns that they would use to take a fortress, guess where they are? They're not. They are. They're in Theodore Rodrigo. 153 guns, all inside the town. So the French can't retake Theodore Rodrigo. It's literally impossible for them. In That's terms of like losses... Two birds, one stone kind of situation there. It really is. It's, it's an incredible stroke of luck. I don't think that's planned. I think that's just how it happens. So um, it's, going, it's going very well... I just want to circle back to the killing the civilians part, um, because it is such a dark subject, and we're going to come on to Badhoff in a moment. But what's the scale of it, Stuart Rodrigo? Is it nobody knows for sure, um, or is this, this is, is this now most of the people who are going in? It's it's not clear what happens. Um, to be really honest, it's not like Badhoff where we've finally been able to unearth some really comprehensive records for it. The numbers that were bandied around for Badahoff were massively overinflated anyway. Um, what seems to happen much more with Theodore Rodrigo is the, uh, the, the looting. So, for example, when the Light Division march out, they stick some of their plunder on the edges of their bayonets for easy carrying. And so they march out past Wellington and they've got things like loads of bread, hams, some of them have even got bird cages stuffed, impaled on the ends of their bayonets. And Wellington gives them a weird look, asks who the hell are these people? And he doesn't do anything because he's just so kind of perplexed. It's a kind of genuine WTF moment for him. Um, but I, I don't know the numbers. I'm not sure anybody really knows the numbers, but it's not on a large scale. It's at Badahoff where we see significant numbers being killed. Okay. So it's, it's dark and they're stealing from, and let's be clear about this, unarmed civilians, 
uh, who should actually be their allies, not that we can ever justify attacking civilians. And that is never okay, uh, and hence my hatred of uh, Bonapartism really comes down to the people that actually trying to, over several years research, try to justify killing civilians because apparently two wrongs make a right, and it just does not. Um, so we can't, I can't justify that no one should. Uh, but you've got, yes, going in and getting some booze because they're effectively go, undergoing uh, traumatic stress. And actually, let's face it, food, because they're in the depths of winter and it's very hard to feed an army and I think things have started to spiral from there. It doesn't take too long for Wellington's sights to move towards Badahoff. He's got his trained eye. Uh, even Wellington's biggest critics, bastards, um, have to admit that Wellington's got a great eye for strategy and especially for terrain and he knows that he needs both of these cities. So his sight, his telescope as such, move uh, towards the actually slightly more impressive, the fortified Badahoff. And I think the whole army know that they march pretty much straight there. Yeah, they do. So in March, they start on Badahoff effectively. But again, there is preparation. As we've discussed already, the, the British army has previous with Badahoff. I think this is the third attempt to take the town. The first two have to be kind of given up because the French move in and threaten the uh, the army as it's besieging the town. Um, so Wellington takes personal command. He orders a fresh set of siege guns. Um, I would personally say that the preparation isn't quite as meticulous as Theodore Rodrigo, but it's still very thorough. But this is a tougher nut to crack, as you say. The, the town is larger. Theodore Rodrigo is effectively an extended castle fortification, much bigger. It, there is a, a perimeter wall. If you look at aerial photographs of Theodore Rodrigo, you can see the walls very clearly. But it's quite small, particularly by modern standards, but by any standard, it, it is fairly small. Um, whereas Badahoff is much bigger. Uh, you're talking about a garrison of 4,700 Frenchmen under an excellent, very energetic, very intelligent governor, a chap called Philippon, who, like all of the commanders, has been given these orders not to surrender without standing one assault. And Wellington starts by listening to his engineers. So this isn't Welling. This is one of those nice moments when it shows that Wellington isn't kind of pig-headed um, when it comes to the best approach, and he will listen to reason. His engineers convince him that it's best to attack from the southeast rather than the south, which is what he was initially uh, preferring. And the conditions are horrendous, but for very different reasons. It pours with rain. The trenches get flooded. The men are effectively shoveling watery mud. And the French are very energetic. The British start on the Picurina Fort, which is this kind of outlying redoubt. It occupies some high ground and is there to put flanking fire on any attacks that, that go in. So if you're going to if you're going to assault Badahoff, you've got to take, from this direction, you've got to take the Picarina Fort. Now, the French um, carry out a number of sorties, well, a sortie, I should say, uh, rather, which sets operations back, and they eventually take the, um, take the fort on the 25th of May, nine days after they've started. So that puts Theodore Rodrigo into context, because remember, that was 11 days, and the siege was then over. And that costs uh, the Allies 50 killed and 250 wounded. So even before it starts, the, the, the death toll is starting to rack up. 
And it's clear that this is not going to be a Theodore Rodrigo lightning fast operation. Yeah, I remember reading some of this for uh, Wellington's Mongols, which is a fantastic book about the Chasseurs Britanniques, um, a, a kind of on paper a French regiment fighting in the British service, but in, in theory they've got a lot of Poles, Czechs and uh, Germans in there. But is it worth highlighting that there were French loyalists fighting against uh, Bonaparte, something that's kind of close to my heart. I love the fact that they're doing that. But they uh, have a lot of their officers taken away at Badahoff to be engineering officers, uh, to help the engineers, uh, because they're a small core of all engineers, uh, as they were then, and the core of staff was the miners. Uh, and also, uh, they are then involved in the storming of the uh, the outer forts. And it just the idea of how confusing it is, and some the very few limited first-hand accounts there are, at night time, where every single weapon makes a really bright flash, there's no you know clear orders, there's no way of telling anyone where to go apart from shouting, and I can imagine a situation like everybody's shouting, and you've got to go up uh, the forts. I think they were both short of ladders, and the ladders were too uh, were too narrow, too small to actually go up the walls. So they had real problems getting up there. I think actually the Chasseurs Britanniques had huge casualties and didn't get anyone into the forts. And one of the other regiments had longer ladders and could get in. So it's just that level of confusion at night fighting. There's not a lot of night fighting uh, takes place in these kind of eras because both sides find it so confusing. Um, big exceptions like the evening before Talavera. Uh, the French managed to get onto the ridge, and the British are so confused, they're pushed back. That's when Daniel Craig dies. Um, but it, it's genuinely so confusing for both sides that the British commanders, uh, Hills, almost captured, and that probably turned the course of the war. Uh, so, But then going against the walls, it just must be terrifying to actually get up there, especially as the defenders have got cover, and you've got nothing apart from a woolen uh, tunic, basically, to run up. Yeah. So we're, couple, we're over a week in, and we've got the outer defences, and everybody's already gone through a siege, and this is like a mini-siege within a siege, uh, and the city still stood there. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So what's the next move? Well, once the, the fort's gone, then you can focus on the walls itself. Um, and by the 6th of April, you've got three batteries. Um, sorry, three um, breaches in the, the city walls. The plan originally was to assault. So Wellington orders an assault. Um, as soon as he's satisfied, 
that the men can physically get inside because the slope has got to be a shallow enough angle that you can physically climb up it. Once Wellington's happy about that, he orders an assault on the 6th of April, and the plan was for them to go in at 7pm. That was actually delayed because some of the preparations on the Allied side just weren't in place, which was bad because that then gave the French a bonus three hours in which to prepare when the attacks eventually go in at 10pm. And the plan with this one is that the 4th and Light Divisions would attack the three breaches. So the Light Division, obviously, they've got previous because they've just done the, the same thing at Theodore Rodrigo. The 3rd Division, so again, Wellington using a force that he's used before in sieges, i.e. troops that he can trust, uh, is sent to escalate around the castle, which is meant to be a diversion. And then the 5th Division is sent to attack in the northwest, so you've got the the third division kind of going in from the east, the uh, the fourth and the light division going in from this sort of uh, southeast, and then a northwest, literally on the opposite side of the town, trying to split the French forces and thin out the numbers defending the breaches. You've got the fifth division going in. Um, the bottom line is, it's uh, most of the way round, lots of the wall at this point, trying to draw the focus away. Okay. Exactly, exactly. But they're still going to get into those breaches and up those slopes. Yeah, and it's I think I used the technical term earlier, it was a shit show. Um, it's just a bloodbath. The French are incredibly well prepared for this, because Philippon knows what he's doing, uh, and because he is so energetic. Um, they, the particularly nasty thing that the French are prepared in advance is something called a chevaux de frise. Now this mm. is a very sturdy wooden beam with saw blades driven into it at a series of angles. And what this basically acts like is, imagine barbed wire, but with dirty great spikes pointing out of it. So you've got this barrier straight across the, um, the length of the breach that sits on its own feet and can't be just rammed out of the way with these dirty great saw blades. And you've got to bear in mind that we're talking a sabre here is, uh, what, uh, three feet, almost a yard long? So you're talking these very sharp, very lethal blades. And the only way you can get through this, because it's chained in place um, at, at either end, the only way you can get through this thing is to physically hack your way through it with an axe. That's the only way you're going to get in, which is really quite difficult at the best of times because, you know, one miss swing, and suddenly you're going to take a hole out of your arm. Yeah, but also, imagine trying to do that whilst you've got people up on the walls firing at you. You've got cannons up on the walls firing at you from multiple directions. You've got people in the breach firing at you. It's it's no wonder that they can't get in. And do uh, the French mine the breaches? Are they going to be blowing you up as they're running up the slopes? There, there is a technique. I'm now trying to remember whether they mine Badajoz or Theodor Rodrigo. Um, I've got a feeling that there is a small mine in... Theodore Rodrigo, but I don't remember one okay. in so they, can, like, they can potentially bury a few explosives underneath the rubble. and Yeah, I, I think there must have been some at Badajoz, but I can't remember any off the top of my head. Um, but yeah, as you say, that's a, a common technique that's used. Um, it's just, kind just of really horrible away. warfare because you are funneling men into a narrow gap and a, a musket is uh, by nature an inaccurate weapon. I always say it's like a tennis ball coming out of a drain pipe. But when you've got a mass of people coming towards you and you're high up, actually, if you even miss the, who you're ever aiming for, the likelihood is you're going to hit the guy behind him. 
Um, yeah. So the casualty rates are going to get really high. This is the second time they've done this this year. So we're talking April, uh, and they've done it in January. Uh, so it's only a few months ago, and they've had to go through it twice, uh, some of the same men, and they would have lost friends and commanders the last time. So this Absolutely. is when everyone's blood's really up. Yeah, what so they, makes this so different to Suidad Rio, and why does it go so badly after the storming? Well, it takes them two hours to get in, and they don't get in, ultimately. The assaults on the breaches categorically fail. Wellington's at the point of pulling the men out. He's literally about to send that order, telling them to regroup, and they'll start again at daylight. Now, imagine how bad it was at night. Then imagine how bad it was just the idea of doing it in the day was utterly insane. So, you know, the, the, the chances of them actually succeeding during the day, having already su- failed to take the place at night, were slim to non-existent. But Wellington realises that it's not working. So he's at the point of putting the men out when he hears that the diversionary attack on the castle has worked. And so the orders are then sent, and I think the men are actually already on the case with this, to flank the breaches. And they have therefore, they're able to force the French away from those defences in the breaches. And then once they're not under so much fire, then the the Light Division and the 4th Division are able to get in. And they go absolutely ballistic. It's, it's absolute anarchy. For the next 72 hours, the officers lose pretty much all control of their men. A few from the 95th Rifles talk about how they kept control of their men over the night so that they could respond to any French counterattacks, but then as a reward, they let their men go into the town and plunder. There is this kind of culture within the army of plunder as reward. You know, you've, you've fought through hell to get into here, now you can have a couple of hours to, to go and enjoy yourself. There are also rumours amongst the British troops that once they get in, they'll be allowed a couple of hours plunder. There are even some people saying that a bugle was sounded to announce, look, you've got two hours to go and enjoy yourself. The trouble is, once you let these men off the leash, you can't get them back on the leash. The, they, the men, as I say, just go absolutely nuts. You have plunder, obviously, plenty of drunkenness, but you also get a significant amount of murder and rape. The officers that try and stop their men are shot. There's one very vivid account of an officer who basically has this kind of wrestling match with um, one soldier to try and get him to behave himself. And the, the man turns around brings up his musket, clicks the flash, and pulls the trigger straight in his face. Now, the officer's very lucky that the gun's not loaded. So the, the guy kind of realises what's happened, drops the gun, apologises, and legs it. Um, at least he apologises, then. That's all okay. Yeah, I mean, apologise. At least you've got the manners to do that. Um, but this gives you a sense of how the the red mist, if you like, has descended on these men. Um, yeah. One is absolutely furious. Um, uh, that's the thing, you go red mist for three days? Like, Well, yes, but there are reasons for that. Actually, what's happening there? Because after a night, after a day, 24 hours, people have got to calm down. Your adrenaline cannot keep your body going like that um, for that long. Well, so this is what's part of the well, problem. Well, he's got provost, so what does he start to do? Well, you say the pro- he's got the provost, but the provost, bear in mind, is one officer and a couple of sergeants per division. Um, so a division is a few thousand men. So at best you've got maybe 11 provosts to a division. That's probably pushing it, probably more like five. They've got no way of keeping all of these men in check. 
There is, I don't want to go into a huge amount of depth because I did um, talk to Alex about this quite a lot a while back when I talked about crime and punishment, so I don't want to bore people with the same material, but essentially uh, it's said that a, a hangman's noose is erected in the main square on Wellington's orders. Um, and that he basically threatens to hang anybody who is caught in the act of plundering. There's no record of anybody being hanged. So although they build this scaffold, there's no record of it actually being used. Why does it go on so long? Well, this is a key question. Wellington's so angry that he tries to send in fresh troops, Portuguese troops, to quell the men. The trouble is the Portuguese troops just join in the looting. And that, thinking, I think, gives a second wave to it. And you're thinking, oh, the Portuguese, they're going to be maybe a bit sympathetic to the Spanish. And then you remember that actually only about 10 years before, Portugal and Spain were at war. And actually, even less than that, when uh, Spain, uh, when the French invaded Portugal, they actually used some Spanish troops. So there's not much love lost there. In fact, actually, the chance to kick someone when you're down uh, is might be what's going on. But yes, yeah, the second wave, some of the accounts are horrific. Um, they really are. And I mean, it's worth I saying. Say, this, is, this is pretty much Wellington's Army's darkest hour. Yeah, I, I mean, people often bandy around the term war crime. If you're going to find a war crime from the British during the Peninsula War, this is it. There's, it's very difficult. You can't defend this. And people try sometimes. They turn around to me and say, oh, there's a rapist in every man. You've you just got to, in the right circumstances, somebody will turn into an absolute animal. But that doesn't make it okay. You know, you've no. got to bear in mind, as we have emphasised a few times, that the Spanish are Britain's allies. These civilians are not legitimate targets by any rules of war, even though there aren't official rules at this point. If you were to take your anger out on anybody, if you were going to put the garrison to the sword, the key word there is garrison. It's the French who, in effect, potentially forfeited their lives. Um, now, it's worth that, saying... There is that, that rule about if they don't surrender the town, then, you know, they become fair game. I think that's thrown around quite a lot. But again, it's the garrison. This is the point. This is what always gets me. It's the garrison that is meant to be fair game. You can put the garrison to the sword, the soldiers, not the civilians. Now, the civilians may end up becoming, and this is a horrible term, collateral damage, but that doesn't make it acceptable. It doesn't make it okay. Having said all of that, there is there has been a lot of exaggeration. So the numbers of civilians killed have been massively inflated. Four thousand was bandied around for a long time. In fact, it was even on the Encyclopedia Britannica website because some guy looked it up and came up with this number, and and that was cited. Um, what we've actually found is we've gone into the census. The, the French did a census immediately before the siege began, and they found that there weren't even four thousand civilians inside. Badahoff to start with. So if you massacred everybody in the town, you still wouldn't have got to 4,000. And then shortly after the census was taken, what they found, what the French did, is they ejected some of the civilians because they didn't want to feed them. They just used those mouths to feed. So the, part of the starvation problem, right? Yeah, exactly. So in reality, we have some. There's a, a, a diocese, um, a diocese archive in Badahoff, which has very specific breakdowns by street and house number of who was killed uh, and who was injured or, or seriously injured. What we've actually found by adding up all the numbers is that it's 125 who were killed. And that doesn't make it okay, but it nonetheless shows that this 4,000 number has been massively, massively inflated. 
I've definitely seen some stuff in Charles Esdale's uh, brilliant work uh, that there was actually some Spanish on Spanish violence that as things started to kick off the you know, people used it as an opportunity to take out grudges upon their neighbours uh, and kind of cover it up with the crimes. But yeah, it's a it's a really it's a really difficult topic because I, I'd fundamentally believe that we are there uh, as a British army to liberate a occupied nation and that has been treated appallingly. Uh, we covered this at length in the Gorillas episode and we went into the atrocities on both sides that the Spanish are committing against the French and the French are committing against the Spanish. Uh, but the French are especially doing it against civilians. And we've got to kind of view it that there's a good guy and there's a bad guy and that's the point to any war, hopefully. Otherwise, the killing is unnecessary. And this slightly undermines that and it kind of shatters the glass massively. Um, and it's always quite frustrating that actually there's not big repercussions. Well, you said there aren't big repercussions. This is something else that I explained to Alex. The whole reason I started my PhD was that I went looking for repercussions, expecting to find some, and there were none. The the men absolutely got away with it, to to the hilt. And there are a few reasons for that. Some of the officers were complicit, i.e. they literally lined their pockets. Partly it was, it would have been challenging to have brought certain cases to prosecution and not others, because so many were involved in this. Partly you've got issues of evidence, you know, you've got to find the people who are willing to testify. You've also got the psychological element for the army, and I think this is the big thing. I think Wellington decides that, yes, it was horrendous, it was utterly unacceptable, but the army has got to move on. He knows that the campaign's not over, he now needs to take that army into the centre of Spain and fight some tough battles there. And if he spends the next month... um, talking, uh, sorry, arranging these these crimes, um, then, sorry, arranging the prosecution of these crimes, then what you have is is a situation where the army is looking backwards and not forwards, mm-hmm. and it's going to shatter the army's morale because they are being punished for their actions in the wake of a siege. And it's quite clear from some of the accounts that a number of the rank and file consider plunder, at the very least, to be their right. And that's it. You're saying so many people are complicit. And frankly, if they started to hang or shoot everybody who behaved abominably in this, it's going to decimate his army. Uh, he's always short of men. Um, and I know from conversations that we have about your research that they do, you know, hang rapists and shoot deserters. But if they do that here, they're just not going to have much of an army left. And Well, they don't hang rapists. They flog rapists in a flog couple of isolated scenarios but yes they do hang plunderers that's the provost's mo if you like it's how they do their business if you can't so quick hanging in the act you can hang them straight away there's also so i i i really can't defend the soldier's actions um however i will defend wellington because he's really frustrated by this and there's some very this is there's some thrown around quotes and potentially he said some of the earth here but we know he said it after in letters after victoria um but it affects him, and I think it actually it's the effect on seeing how many men had died of his own, and it's the one of only two times I know that he he weeps, and the the famous one being after Waterloo, he wept for about uh, half an hour in the early hours of the 19th of June when he'd been given the, the butcher's bill of casualties and he'd seen friends, but he'd also ridden back across that battlefield by himself. But here he's seeing, I, I can just imagine, it is piles of bodies, some of it mixed in with limbs, uh, and just they're absolute like, piles going up the escarpments into the breaches. And he 
he openly weeps uh, there and he's deeply moved by Badhoff. Yeah, Pixon, um, Pixon comes across him weeping. He's, so he tours the breaches to see what the men have had to fight their way through the, the next day. And Pixon comes across him openly weeping. And Pixon, deeply controversial, deeply problematic, but also an incredibly brave individual, he doesn't understand it at all, which gives you a, a good sense of Pixon's psychology, that you know this is not a man in tune with his emotions. But he cannot understand why Wellington is, is weeping. He thinks Wellington's wounded. And Wellington knows Picton well enough to know that Picton will never get it. And so when Picton asks him what's the matter, he basically swears. And Wellington's not hugely known for his bad language, but basically swears and blames the government for not sending him enough engineers and um, support from for artillery and so on. Um, so he, he kind of gets himself out of having to explain that one to a guy who won't understand. But yeah, he's, there's no doubt about it. Wellington doesn't like wasting men's lives and... He feels that Badahoff is a complete waste because bear, bear in mind how many are killed and wounded 4,700. Now, Salamanca, I think the losses are something like, which is a few months later, big pitch battle, an entire French army given a massive kicking, has a casualty rate of something like 4,028 killed and wounded. So that gives you a sense that this is effectively the loss of an entire battle, a transformative mm-hmm. battle just to take one border force to take a town which you know in traditional senses could be starved out could be surrendered and it's it's not something he wants to do um, yeah it's interesting you mentioned Picton who's a very controversial figure because he's just had his statue moved from Cardiff at the end of last year uh, but the man is I think in Wellington's words you know a gruff individual not particularly nice man but I need people like him he said something along those lines Picton's quite a difficult one uh, but was actually a very good soldier. A bit like Black Bob Crawford, you know, he flogs his own men, uh, but there's a kind of that love-hate thing with his men. Maybe we should do a whole thing about Wellington's commanders another time, because there's some very interesting characters, uh, some who actually you can absolutely love and some you can love to hate. Um, but this isn't the end of it. This is kind of where we get to see the end of it in sharp, uh, and this is kind of the end of it for most wide knowledge. We have um, Suidad Rodrigo going pretty well, uh, Badhoff go pretty badly, uh, very badly, but it's taken, you know, kind of tick box one, two. And then so how do we get to Burgos? Yeah, so if we go back to the, the good, the bad and the ugly, I would say we've talked already, Fidel Rodrigo is the good. The ugly, I would say, is actually Badahoff because of the aftermath, which leaves the bad, Burgos. This is the one that he doesn't pull off. Um, this is another shit show to keep using that highly technical term that I'm becoming so it's fond really of. technical. You've got to get yeah. this in print now, oh, by the way, shit show. Yeah, good luck getting that past minute to me. Um, so Burgos takes place post-Salamanca. Um, I always am fond of another technical term, seeing as I'm, I'm on a roll here, when it comes to Wellington's situation post the Battle of Salamanca in July 1812, where he mauls uh, the main French army in central Spain. Wellington ends up in what I call a Napoleonic sandwich, He's got a French army to the south of him, a French army to the north of him, there's another French army to the north of that, and there's a French army to the, uh, in, on the east coast of Spain. Basically, on three sides, he's got enemies, and he needs to decide what's he going to do to try and solve this situation. Because if he moves north to attack the French armies there, then the army to the south can come and basically give him a good kicking up the backside and surround his army, and then he's screwed. If, however, he marches south to deal with the uh, French army that's in Andalusia, then the North Army 
can do the equivalent. They can march south, give him a kick in the arse, surround him and crush him. So it's an impossible situation. What he eventually does is he strikes north towards a town called Burgos and it's thought perhaps the plan was to force the French out of the northern part of Spain um, back perhaps towards the river Ebro. Whatever the, the reality, Wellington basically seems to have lost his touch by this point. If you look at the very famous sketch by Francisco Goya of Wellington after the liberation of Madrid in August of 1812, he looks utterly gaunt, completely haggard, and his eyes are just these kind of pits of sorrow. You can see the toll that the war has taken on him. So he goes after the French army to the north, and in the process, the French pull back, and they unmask a, a what is effectively a, a fortified hill, a castle, if you like, called Burgos. Now, I suspect this is where Wellington's kind of India experience starts to count against him, because you say the word hill fort in India, and it means something very different to what it means in Europe. Yeah. Burgos is a medieval castle with some fairly strong fortifications, not impregnable by any means, but it's not an easy nut to crack. Um, it's a, if you like, you could think of it as perhaps a scaled-down Theodore Rodrigo. The French have been updating the fortifications. They haven't finished that process, actually. Um, but crucially, when they start the siege on the 19th of September, there's been no preparation. Wellington really shouldn't have besieged Burgos, is the bottom line. Um, he should have just masked it with a, a covering force and then continued following the French and kind of started in submission. He's got three siege guns with him. Now, I'm trying to remember the numbers for Burgos, but I think it's at least 18, possibly even more. Uh, so the numbers for Badajoz is 18, possibly more. Um, and one of those one of those siege guns is nicknamed Nelson because it's missing bits from artillery damage. It gives you a sense <laughs> a bit of, of an arm, a bit of an eye. Yeah, exactly. It gives you a sense of just how much of a mess they're in. Um, they eventually decide to try mines. So the first one that they blow uh, 10 days into the siege on the 29th of September, it doesn't work. The tunnel, and this is kind of almost a Pythonesque moment, the tunnel is too short. They'd dug this tunnel, they'd come up against this large piece of masonry, they think they found the perimeter wall. What they've actually found is the ruins of an old forward bastion that isn't visible from ground level. And so they pull this, these explosives against it and blow it up, and they're about 100 metres short of the actual wall. They, when they explode the mine, there was a partial collapse of the wall, but it's nowhere near as extensive as they planned. And to add to the, the ludicrous nature of all of this, the force that's sent to carry out the assault gets lost because the guides can't find their way in the dark. So that attack is just a complete shambles. They try again a week later on the 4th of October with a second mine. They manage to fight their way through the curtain wall, but they can't get into the inner defences. And so you've got to dig your way. You've got to dig more trenches for your going places and then bash the internal defences. It's, it's just a complete mess. And in the end, it takes too long. Um, they, the British and Portuguese suffer 509 dead, including Wellington's protégé, Charles Cox, which really affects him. 1,555 wounded, and within that time, they haven't taken the town, and 
exactly the situation that I explained a few moments ago of the, the French army to the south coming up to harass his rear and potentially cut him off from Portugal, starts to do exactly that, starts to move and threaten Madrid. And the army has to cut and run, and I really do mean run, for the Portuguese border, way back to the safety of Theodore Rodrigo. And if you look on a map at where Burgos is in relation to Theodore Rodrigo, it's a long march and it's a hard march. And they don't get back there until November, marching pretty much constantly. So uh, that, if you like, is the bad, you know, the, 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 the fortification that never falls. When the British go back into the region in 1813, the French blow up the fortifications. Um, so all of that dead were, were literally for nothing. Great. I mean, it's it's gone really badly, uh, like you say. Kind of started off okay. Um, so the Rio not, didn't finish perfectly. Uh, Badhoff, very difficult uh, siege and horrible aftermath. And then Burgos, they never even got in. Um, and he ends up kind of going back. But they've got they've got the two keys to Spain, I guess, is the is the key point there and uh, those become really crucial uh, throughout the whole campaign so let's just take it back to what it means strategically what it means as Wellington as a commander so I will always seek saying that Wellington is a very good all-round commander I cannot hammer that home enough he is not a defensive general but he's not doing very well from this on sieges which there is another siege to come in the Peninsula War, um, but yeah, that's even more difficult. And at this moment in time, you've got one and he keeps going into Spain. He keeps, you know, either going in and there's a, there's a victory uh, as an attack, or the French are coming to then get the Allied force, and he's beating them back off that hill successfully. Uh, great, time and time again, we need to go in. He's being let down sometimes by Spanish allies, which means he needs to withdraw. He ends up back in Portugal more than he'd like to, and so he needs to take these cities. Do you think it kind of affects the overall campaign? Does he become a bit more hesitant about siege battles? I'm not sure he becomes more hesitant about anything, really. I, I think Wellington knew that Theodore Rodrigo and Badov particularly were going to be difficult, that was going to be bought with blood. Um, I think the bottom line is really that Wellington was not a brilliant besieger. Um, with time and prep, certainly, because preparation is, is his thing, he's a meticulous micromanager, then yes, these sieges can go very well. But he faced an incredibly stubborn enemy, um, an enemy that wasn't inclined to listen to the standard conventions of warfare from his period, if you like, from the Ancien Regime. Um, and I think he's probably too used to his experiences in India, where the fortifications perhaps weren't quite as... Um, technological, really, because there is this almost kind of technology to siege warfare that's been developed in Europe. Um, so, yeah, I don't think he's more hesitant. Um, I think in the longer term, particularly because of Salamanca, he's able to achieve more. You've got to bear in mind that the French basically give up their hold on the whole of the south of the country in order to kick him back to the Portuguese border in 1812, and they never re-establish that control. That, that's it, gone. So in effect, he does liberate the South sort of by default. And that then enables him to move much, much faster in the 1813 campaign. But yeah, it, it's from a, a psychological perspective, I think it takes its toll, particularly on the men, um, the, the scale of the work, the bloodiness of the work. Um, but it's, it's all part of what was necessary in order to secure the liberation of Spain in the longer run. And it leaves 
slightly uneasy thing with the Spanish. How does it affect, especially from your research, how does it affect their attitudes with their civilian allies as well as their military? They're working together, uh, but they've just gone and like, kind of done these atrocities. Yeah, the interesting thing about Badajoz is that for all of the murder, it doesn't get raised. There's no big public outcry. It doesn't seem to... It's almost like the news of it never gets out in the UK. And the Spanish papers have basically got a choice for a very simple reason. The first newspapers to report in Spain, to report on what the British had done at Badajoz, were Francophile publications. We talked earlier about the Afrancesados, the, Fran- the Francophile um, Spanish civilians. It's those publications that first pick up on this. And so the pro, uh, the nationalists, if you like, newspapers, the patriotic press, have a choice. They can either join their French sympathising counterparts, well, that's an obvious no-no, or they can just let the whole thing go. And so they seem to choose the latter. But it does expose a lot of the tensions that exist, much deeper tensions, tensions of religion, Uh, a tendency for the British to look down their noses at the Portuguese and the Spanish. Um, We'll probably discuss this on another episode, but kind of describing these people as dirty and louse-ridden and backward and really using quite derogatory language. It also shows that the British soldier doesn't really care about what it takes to get what they want. If they need food, they will take it. It doesn't matter if it's an allied civilian or an enemy civilian. They deem it as their right and their necessity. It also exposes some of the cultural um, issues within the army about attitudes to plunder, which, as I say, I've discussed at length um, with Alex on an episode of History Hack, and I've also discussed at length on my own podcast, so we won't go into that now. But it, it does show that for all that we might like to construct this image of the British soldier marching across Spain and Portugal, acting as the benevolent liberator, the reality is a lot more complex and it's a lot less pleasant in terms of stomaching it yes i say they have in the service the scum of the earth but what mighty fine gentlemen we've made of them but sometimes they are just pretty scummy um yeah it's it's a difficult fact that if you are going to treat people very badly and recruit them sometimes from the the dregs of society and pay them badly and then expect them to kill for a living they might not end up being the world's best behaved gentlemen but uh like you say, a bit of a necessary evil. And it's the most difficult one uh, to kind of to, to tackle, really, with the Peninsula War, the, the two sieges. We don't know what would have happened if they got into Burgos. Um, I hope they would have performed better, but I somewhat doubt it uh, afterwards. So, yeah, I'm really glad we managed to, to cover that. Uh, there's a whole other complicated element, I say, into Sharp's company with uh, the... The purchasing system, but that's actually quite dry, but the seeds themselves are quite dark, they're very bloodthirsty on both sides, uh, but the British especially go on a bit of a murdering rampage, which is so important that we don't go skip over that, and we don't just hark on about empire and glory uh, and sound like a Bonapartist. We want to kind of look at the whole history and uh, make sure we, we tackle it fairly. Yeah, there will be no cult Napoleon on this podcast, but there will also be no cult Wellington on it either. Um, for all that Marcus does love uh, a bit of fanboying over Wellington, he does it fairly. Oh, yeah. um, so, you know, credit where but it's due. I think you, we, have to, we have to view um, 
negatives and I, the only thing to be said in defence of Wellington and I will say is he obviously was unhappy with that uh, behaviour of his soldiers and could do little about it uh, but should have done more uh, within his power uh, it is you know yeah, they should have done more. And in fairness, they do learn their lessons. Um, so when you have the siege of San Sebastian in 1813, what you see in the preparation for the aftermath of that is that the Wellington and, and Graham, who were kind of collectively involved in that operation, put in place measures that they use in desperation to quell what's happening at Badahoff. So there is a learning process there. So what are we doing next time, mate? So next time, we are going to look at the soldiers themselves. We've looked at some of their dark points. Now we're going to look at some of their, the highlights. And actually, what is the life like for a soldier? Especially, we're going to look at um, some of the famous accounts of the 95th Rifles, uh, the Chosen Men themselves, and what they kind of went through on this really long campaign. Some of them for as long as from 1808 to 1814, uh, constantly away. Uh, the sickness, the campaign life, as well as the fear uh, of the battles themselves. There's so much to these men. They've got their lives on their backs and they are just a normal human being and they go through huge hardships uh, for very little uh, reward. And to me, that, that makes them more heroic. But also we need to kind of understand them and uh, what makes them tick. Yeah, absolutely. So we'll look at the, the dynamics of what makes them fight, what makes them stick with their units on campaign. We'll look at issues of food. We'll also look at the experiences of women, because we should remember that there are camp followers of this army. You have battalion wives, and what do they go through? What roles do they have in supporting the army? Um, what are their experiences? Because it's an incredibly hard life. So there's a lot there for us to unpick next time on Sharpshooters. When our guests join us to talk about their work and their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support and here's to your next great book. We are now on YouTube. We are posting all of our new episodes on there and we have our own channel and we are gradually posting all of the back episodes because we have been made aware of the fact that you can only find the last hundred on some platforms. So you can go and listen to your heart's content and laugh at the cartoons and have a great time. So do go over there and subscribe. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.